be on Jackie Chan if you can. In honor of Central Intelligence, what is the funniest action sequence? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with that fight scene between Tom Wilkinson and Paul Giamatti in the opening credits of Duplicity, the most underrated movie maybe of all time. Well, Hey, it's me, David the Seven. Do we still like Monty Python? Because I think about Holy Grail's the It's Just a Scratch Black Knight sequence. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with 1984's Top Secret, the underwater fight. Because punching through a window is 10,000 times funnier when you're underwater. And I'm David Ehrlich, and uh, I'm going to go with the example that I saw most recently, though it is timelessly brilliant. The little children fight in Step Brothers, in which Will Ferrell and John C. Riley are forced to lick a piece of white dog shit. You would take that over the fight scene in which they use a bicycle as a weapon? They're, they're neck and neck, really. You would it's take really... that scene over the stepbrother fight in Little Children? <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. I do not approve. Thank you. Thanks. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine. I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good. Then, well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 123 for Tuesday, June 14th, 2016. Big day. On this day in 1942, in the middle of World War II, which I did not know, uh, Disney released Bambi. What a way to break the hearts of children whose fathers were away fighting wars. God. Oh, there's no father in that movie, is there? Wait, no, I don't remember no, Bambi at all. No, there is a father. Uh, you see him at in a distance, end? and then the mother gets killed. Oh, wow. That's yeah, sad. Yeah, man. Tough times. <laughs> sad. <laughs> then sad. there's Thumper. He's funny. Yeah. Uh, anyway, before we get started, David, I hear we have some reviews. We do. Uh, we have two that I'm going to read tonight. First, from mmurf71, who says, a boy band of a podcast. Dave Seven is the talent. He's the one everyone comes to see. He's great in a group, but his solo career will be huge. Katie is the steady one, not as natural as Dave Seven, but works hard, and it shows. She will host (laughs) a game show. I'm the JC Chazé of this. Exactly. She will host a game show someday. Okay. Wait, is that more Joey Fatone? I don't... Wait, what was JC oh, from? JC is Excuse me. Excuse me. Let's finish this first. I am the microphone. <laughs> I'm speaking. The other two guys hate everything and always seem mad, but it's not a boy band without four people. <laughs> <laughs> we don't even have counterparts in this band. Joanna well. fills in from time to time. She's great, but when you buy a ticket to a show and it's not the original lineup, you're always a little disappointed. Aw. That is maybe the first time anyone's ever mentioned Joanna in terms of anything but have more Joanna plays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is both sad, uh, I guess, okay. and a thrill. Yeah, kind of. Our other review this evening comes from Sleeping Giant. Sleeping Giant. How can everyone argue with David so much when he's basically always right? Is the subject mm. of this wow. review. Not again. Oh, the people have spoken patches, and here's what they have to say. I've meant to write this review for a while now. Sorry for the delay. I love you all dearly. I am always disappointed when one of you can't make an episode, even if it means the fabulous Joanna fills the open seat. Dave Seven is a podcasting wonderkind, coming up with new shows and ideas constantly. We also need him on more review episodes. 
I feel like I could go to a bar with Patches right now and have a grand time talking about movies, Star Wars, pop culture, etc. Katie, the glue, yeah. is indispensable and a treasure. I wish her all the best with her newborn, but her maternity absence from the podcast will be felt. In parentheses, who will the men talk over while she is gone? <laughs> Don't worry, sleeping giant. We will find a new woman to <laughs> stop all over. Finally, David is easily the most polarizing voice of the show, and maybe among all film podcasts. I hate when I disagree with him because his diatribes can be tough to handle, but I don't usually worry about that because he is almost always right. Which leads to what prompted me to write this review, in all capital letters now, Now You See Me is a, insert expletive, abomination. (laughs) David has never been more right. Never. I respect the diversity of opinions, except when it comes to this, ugh, franchise. A humble request. Please consider discussing more non-Hollywood fare for the review episodes. I know you are seeing some great films, so reviewing something like An Embrace of the Serpent or Tangerine would be appreciated. And feel free to skip things like Pixels. Thanks. I can't. I have to see Adam Sandler movies. Yeah, it's true. Sorry. As long as you have Matt Patches, you will have Patches. Adam Sandler movie reviews. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the rest of that, well noted. And... Uh, Exciting, and please keep leaving reviews, especially when you're nice to us and uh, you don't think that Joanna is the only reason to listen to this podcast, even though she's not on it most of the time. She has a wonderful reason, though. We like. <laughs> she has a wonderful that. reason. We love Joanna. A, we love having her surprise. on the show. Uh, per- yeah, exactly. We want to keep it a surprise, so when Joanna shows up, it's like this Christmas present you didn't even know you were getting. Exactly. Exactly. The fun aunt. <laughs> So back in 2003, I was probably um, hitting my my stride as someone who loved going to every type of movie, was ready for the challenge, was ready for the risks, and, uh, you know, later years of high school and such. But uh, then I caught Finding Nemo, a beloved film, I believe. I mean, what a, just, just to uh, take survey of the room here, who loves Finding Nemo? The, the frozen of its day, some might, might call it. Wow, that <laughs> wow. might be where I'm going with this, but... Uh... <laughs> I love Finding Nemo. Come you at do. me, bro. Yeah, it's, uh... As far as Pixar movies go, pretty good. Uh, you usually see it at the top of uh, a Pixar ranked list. I don't care for Finding Nemo, and I really haven't gone back to it over the years. Um, it just rubbed me the wrong way. Overly sentimental, overly calculated. Um, I guess I just saw Pixar's hand too much in, in Finding Nemo, and I wasn't. And you enamored. hate your father. And I love Shark Tale. No. Um, <laughs> I do not love Shark Tale. Uh, yeah, there was something about Finding Nemo, the divide there. Just I really uh, didn't care for Dory, actually. Dory was the mater of 2003. I got some bad news for you, Batches. Right, no, well, <laughs> so this really leads me. Uh, my confusion here is why would I not like Finding Nemo? Am I, am I right about anything? Was the, was the character incessant or were they on to something? What, what, I don't, well, maybe don't psychoanalyze me and figure out why I don't like Finding Nemo, but I'm happy to be convinced by anyone that I should check it out again. But I'm also excited to hear about Finding Dory to see if it's um, 
changed the game at all if it's it's if it's a huge deviation from the original finding nemo how it how it doesn't just repeat itself and a few of us have seen it well actually i think david you're the only one who's seen do you uh, do you remember being impressed at all by the effects in finding nemo i remember the water being i do remember reading articles about the water at the time (laughs) like huge innovations in uh wave technology dave do you know anything about wave technology in circa 2003 what was it was finding nemo a breakthrough you're an animation guru I mean, definitely, I'm not going to say that Finding Nemo, I don't know specifically about it, but if you're talking about the pocket that we, like, really figured out water in cool ways, that is definitely where it is. So, like, slightly post-Titanic, which did a pretty good job, but didn't get all the way there. Um, Computer animation got really good at water effects. Yeah. But also, it's interesting that Pixar's sub-Disney at this time, and Disney has a really long history in the special effects department doing water effects going back to like Pinocchio and whatnot. Yeah. So Disney's Disney companies and Disney uh, related companies have always been really good at uh, water effect animation. Yeah. So I have an irrational distaste for this movie and, and even more irrational disinterest in finding Dory, which apparently is fantastic. People are crying people who, you know, the cold hearted David, Wept, I guess, maybe a little bit. Uh, shed probably I, a tear. I did not shed tears, but a, I a salty sea tear. <laughs> no, this is not the kind of. Uh, I can certainly see why someone would. No, no judgment on my end, but um, I no tears were shed in the spirit of honesty. But it's quite good. I mean, I think it's uh, whenever you see a Pixar sequel, and unfortunately we've seen so many of them, I think that there is a certain spark of originality that is sacrificed at the altar of profit from the start, no matter how uh, expertly put together and and warm and witty something like Finding Dory is. And it eventually is. The first half, I have great concerns about a character like Dory carrying a whole movie. Uh, And for the first half, uh, those concerns seem valid. And then they get to this water park and the weight really is evenly dispersed amongst all these great supporting characters. And, uh, the movie comes together because of them, because she's just one piece in a bigger whole. But uh, yeah, I mean, even at its best, it, it doesn't have that that sense of wonder. Like everything has come together for the first time, it feels sort of functory. Even though it answers the structure and some of the themes of Finding Nemo, even for people who haven't seen it in a long time, like myself, uh, in a way that makes it feel like this movie was made for more reasons than just to make money. Uh, but is it, you know? We all know my party line on this, where, like, the best Pixar is a bad day at the office for Studio Ghibli. So uh, I sort of I feel like that's the case here. But this is not the best Pixar, but it's uh, it's the best movie since Up, I think. Um, oh, wow. Sound, no, no, but I was just about to say that sounds impressive. Look at what they've made since Up. Toy Story 3 is a piece of shit. That's everyone wrong. knows that's that. not true. No, everyone knows that. I do not that like is Toy a, Story 3 either. Thank you. Toy, uh, Toy Story 3 is a great and, action movie. And Toy Story 3, I think, is the only movie since up that uh that seems like it would be really competitive or would be overlooked when you're making a proclamation like that so i'm comfortable in saying that finding dory is the best pixar movie since up inside out i would stick up for nope bad movie yeah wow. david hated that one that is <clears throat> that's even crazier than me not no, liking I finding mean, nemo inside out does have that spark originality it's very clever uh, i just don't think that it it works i feel nothing watching that movie and i actively turned against it when a certain character meets 
their demise. So Uh, what gives the emotional tug of Finding Dory? You mentioned, you know, could this character sustain a movie? The answer is yes, but like how? That's what I can't imagine. And I just have horrible flashbacks to Cars 2, which took Mater Hmm. and decided we'll just change the genre. We'll make a spy movie. And that certainly wasn't enough because it's fucking Mater. On the simplest level, Finding Nemo was about a father looking for his son. Uh, And this sort of flips that on its head and is about a daughter looking for her parents. Dory remembers early in the film uh, in a very, very convenient plot device that she has a family and she is going to go find them. And so it sort of shows, even though we saw Nemo's point of view from uh, in Finding Nemo, and so it wasn't really just rooted with uh, Albert Brooks' character Marlin looking for him, this, this in much the same way sort of flips that on its head. Uh, what I found so moving about Finding Dory was that, uh, and it uses the ocean to great effect to do this, is that it really palpably conveys the sense of the world being this very large, terrifying, completely indifferent place, uh, and how much more valuable friends and family in particular, uh, and being loved can be when you have that sense. I mean, there's so many scenes in this movie, particularly in the beginning, where Dory is like the only fish on screen, this massive murk of water, and you've been conditioned beyond our natural fear of the ocean or maybe seen too many movies to expect that something is going to pop out and get her. Uh, and you know, for the most part, nothing does. Uh, but you really palpably feel that, that sense of just how alone she is in this world that would swallow her up without thinking, you know, without, uh, even noticing. And, and, that allows the payoff of the movie to resonate a lot stronger than it might have otherwise. See, that's something that that I loved about Finding Nemo is the way that it conveyed, like you were saying earlier, a sense of wonder in the ocean and also a sense of terror. I'm terrified of the ocean, as I think all people should be. And I think Finding Nemo, for as colorful and witty and, like, you know, childlike energy it has, especially when you're in a fish tank, the things that they encounter in the ocean itself are spectacular and scary and cool and fit in with the theme. Like that's what was really lingered. But for that's me with why that movie. Marlin's journey in that movie is so. It, it it is it is scary. I mean, lost in the sea. But why Dory always felt like an intrusion in that exploration. I don't really know. I mean, she adds this kind of like mental unhinged, uh, just making everything more chaotic and everything scarier, intensifying the situation. But I'm not sure. Dory is an essential part of the original Finding Nemo. Yeah, she teaches him how to let go and how to like <laughs> try not to have control the whole time. That feels really fake to me. Really? Yes. Well, no, but Dory is, I mean, Marlon is so neurotic. And Dory is, because of her uh, mental impairment, almost incapable of being neurotic. And while that's an obvious foil, I think it does lend a very different character to both these movies and also makes their dynamic work. I mean, my problem with Pixar is that so many of all of their movies, except for Ratatouille, in my estimation, are too instructive morally. They mm. tell you exactly how to feel. And Inside Out is one of my least favorite of them because it quite literally is about those feelings. It's like a bridge beyond. We have, like Pixar, you're already doing this in your movies, and now those feelings are taking a very certain shape. And Finding Dory, as I was sort of explaining about that sense of uh, fear and wonder and size, the movie, while it does have a certain moral rigidity to it, uh, is more rooted in scope and and feeling than it is in a certain moral and i think that is why i appreciated it more than a lot of other well finding dory is coming out to theaters this week finding nemo i will have to rewatch. although at the time my high school girlfriend also hated it which really 
validated my opinions and made us Wow, you guys were so We were perfect for each other. Yep, yep, yep. We were very cool. I still sometimes listen to the Finding Nemo soundtrack while like walking around in a city and feel like I'm in a little fish tank and find it very enjoyable. Thomas Newman. Yeah, it's a great score. Anyway, the Finding double feature. Will there be a third movie, David? Does it set it up? Finding... Uh, I I mean, it actually, like, I, there's a character voiced by, what's his face? You know, the guy, Ed O'Neill. Yeah, Uh, old what's his face. That's exactly who I think of when you say that, Ed O'Neill. He plays a curmudgeonly octopus, and if there were to be a third movie, I think it would almost certainly center around him. Uh, But I don't know if there was necessarily going to be a third movie. Does it bum any of us out that uh, Andrew Stanton wound up having to crawl back to Pixar and make a sequel after John Carter bombed? No, because the other day I was at a Starbucks in Soho and saw Andrew Stanton sitting in the corner drinking a coffee and reading a gigantic novel. And I was like, this guy is living the dream. Wow. Sitting in Starbucks and reading a gigantic novel. I don't know. He just looked so at peace. And I was very jealous because I had to go back to work. That sounds pretty good. And I also thought I'm the only person recognizing Andrew Stanton here. (laughs) Sad. That's probably true. Sad. 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 Uh. Google some Pixar directors. Any segment, I just want to bring up two tinier documentary films that are coming out this weekend that I would highly recommend. I don't know if you guys have seen these movies yet. First one is Tickled. Anyone? Boo. You hate Tickled. I did not enjoy Tickled. I think Tickled... Well, here's the interesting thing about Tickled. So Tickled's no, directed... Well, how are you going to finish that sentence? I'm really curious. No, yes. Let, let me get there. Uh, <laughs> Tickled is a film by David Ferrier and Dylan Reeve, and I, I don't want to say too much about it because it's definitely about, in the vein of, say, like, The Jinx, uh, about this kind of episodic investigation into the world of uh, online tickling competitions, t- tickling videos, basically... David Ferrier discovers these videos of, of grown men tickling each other in uh, well-lit, like, fake bedrooms. Um, it's very creepy, and they're set up as competitions. And, yeah, he doesn't really know what to make of it, so he just keeps digging. And what he discovers is horrifying and very, I mean, maybe for us who live, we live on the Internet, nothing can surprise us. Um but still, the power of the internet can do some crazy things, and I think what he finds at the end of Tickled is is rather astonishing. It's not a good movie. It's not like the best constructed documentary. It feels it's a rambling portrait. These guys are not filmmakers, and maybe that's what rubbed you the wrong way, David. Am, yeah, I, am I, I on so. to something? Uh, yes. I think that this is a movie that, um, maybe not like Catfish in some ways, which is a, a lot better like TV that, yeah. show than it, than it is a movie. Uh, is a lot more interesting, it seems, to the filmmakers than it is to me. I, you know, I, I sort of you recognize very early on that they did not capture the story that they um, first set out to capture, and that you know things really got out of hand and they got looped into something else entirely. And that's an interesting idea in theory, and must have been a hell of a roller coaster for them. But yeah, patches, maybe you're right that we're just a little bit too jaded. Where I'm like, well, of course this 
tickling ring is leading to this and this and like oh there's some creepy guy and like yada 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 you know uh, a creepy of, guy I in think, a tickling ring i'm sorry. i know katie i know uh i actually but, i thought of dave dave you've never been in a tickling video right i feel like if anyone's been in a t- tickling competition <laughs> video it might have been you that's probably true Just promise uh, me. i used to go with my friend who for a while had a job where she would uh kick men in the groin for internet porn wow Wait, which, which she was friend like, was Come. this uh her name was uh, rachel i will not say her last name it's not the rachel we all know <laughs> okay. uh but uh, that would be surprising uh, yeah i went with her the first time just to make sure things were on the up and up and yeah she just got paid money to kick up dudes in the groin a lot so uh, this tickling thing if it leads somewhere darker i only saw the surface level of weirdness and it was weird enough my God. Well, if you think that's weird, the second documentary I want to recommend is a film called Nuts. And I think, David, you like this movie. Very much. Okay, good. So Nuts comes out on June 22nd. So not this week, but early next. Um, and it's a, it's a film by Penny Lane, who we actually talked about on this film when we talked about – or on this film, on this podcast – when we talked about the Tribeca Film Festival and the anti-vax documentary, Penny kind of led the charge against that movie. Uh, whether you think that's noble or not, I don't know. But she made a very, very good it portrait. Was. It was. I mean, okay. Well, let's take a stand. Go, Penny. It was awesome. Um, but Penny made a very interesting portrait about this guy named J.R. Brinkley, who in the earlier twenty, earlier bleh, early twentieth century. Um, stumbled on a bit of a fish oil discovery, I suppose. He implanted uh, the goat testicles into men to cure impotency. And yeah. this was not an actual cure for this. No? no. <laughs> wait, wait. David, I like your uh, like church choir call and response right now. Was yeah. it real? Huh? Oh, someone needs to tell me what's wrong with my goat testicles. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, that horny billy goat who you took the scrotum off of and implanted into your testicles, Dave. It's not working. That's just, it's your it's your vigor. It's your natural vigor. So anyway, J.R. Brinkley made an empire out of transplanting goat testicles into men, uh, raised lots of cash. He would go on to buy a radio station and just become this huge millionaire figure scamming people and nuts takes a look at the rise and fall of this man uh living in the american dream i suppose he looks like every other figure who's been swindling america and convincing people that he has all the answers yeah. wait what does that Compare mean that he looks like every <laughs> other figure who's been swindling america because he's there's a just a lot man. of people who are full of shit in this world and so is he dressed wish- like, a, like a tv preacher like is he a sue what do we does he look like donald trump what are we talking about well, does he no, lo- one, no one looks, looks like, like donald, donald trump, trump. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he does look like uh what's a kentucky fried chicken he looks like Colonel sanders oh, okay bit. But he's definitely, you know, he's like P.T. Barnum or something. He he is a showman, and he gets on the radio and preaches the good word of, of his medical miracles. And, yeah, what he how he convinces people is astounding. But then when he falls, it, he falls hard, and it's, and it's pretty depressing. Um, but I think Penny Lane's documentary uses uh, really interesting animation. It reminds me of a, kind of a This American Life come to life come to this american life uh and and it's just really talk about a well-made documentary kind of the opposite of tickled which is just this kind of fascinating can't believe it's happening story and nuts i mean easier to digest but really well crafted david yeah 
Oh, absolutely. I think uh, it's a really clever, cleverly told, lots of uh, wonderful sort of, uh, I don't know what the, the best way to describe the animation that she uses, considering that so much, all of the characters in the movie are, are long dead. Um, and so it's not really much for talking head interviews, but she does have great sources. It's more it's like all, illustration than yes, animation. Yes, it's, it's charmingly illustrated. Um, but it's such a, a great, esoteric American yep. story. I mean, this is a, a story that that I feel like speaks to the very fiber of our country in its best and more often worst ways. And I think only gets more resonant in light of the charlatan who is trying, currently trying to become a president. Uh, <laughs> and I, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really, really interesting documentary. It's a lot of fun. It's short. Uh, it's well worth your time. Uh, so Tickled comes out this Friday and Nuts comes out next Wednesday. See you. I know it's hard sometimes. Yeah, I think about the end just way too much. But it's fun to fantasize. All my enemies who wouldn't wish who I was. But it's fun to fantasize. Oh, 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 oh. I'm born, so I'm taking my time on my ride. Um, so, you know, this, this week, this, this past year, I guess, has been, there's this been week a, sucks. This week sucks. This week sucks. Uh, yeah. we should be careful what we say. We're recording this on Monday night and this week already sucks. Right. That's no, true. God so. knows what might happen between now and <laughs> I mean, but yeah, there's a, this continuous sense. I mean, I don't know how you guys feel, but just like, it's a downer. Uh, you know, the, the political sphere just gets under my skin and what happened this weekend, uh, the tragic events in Orlando, you know, we're not going to really get into that here on, on any sort of level. How can we how can we possibly start? People to, love it uh, when we talk politics. On this deconstruct podcast, it. Well, let's not even go The line, the line is Zeus. We can talk about Zeus. I, just, I will just say it's a damning content, a damning comment, rather, on the state of our current political system that's simply talking about the mass murder of 50 people um, in a hate crime is something that is too political for us to discuss lest we anger anybody. Well, so, okay, but the, I mean, it's it's not that it's, I, 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 it's not I'm that it's too political. It's happy not talking, but no, I think you made a perfectly valid statement. I'm just saying how sad it is that's true. No, yeah, and I mean, there's, there's so much to process uh, on a daily basis and to figure out, and, and the amount... The emotion that I feel, I just, I, I, I found myself this weekend really retreating, which is a negative response. A lot of people have been, you know, on Twitter uh, sharing places that people can go donate for LGBT rights, which is really, really positive, and uh, uh, petitions that people can, uh, you know, sign for for gun rights in America and pe- Congress people to call. It was a really positive response happening i i found myself just like the weight of it really collapsing um and and these situations are always happening especially we're just in this moment we're in this rut um and it got me thinking about escapism what is escapism we talk about it all the time when it comes to movies and television pop culture the things we talk about on this podcast and um i don't i don't know when 
we are allowed to escape reality. I certainly didn't want to be retreating from this, this, uh, these events, these headlines, everything that people were talking about. It, it felt wrong to want to kind of curl up in a ball because we should be shouting and confronting these things and talking about them. And yet, you know, how, how can you – you can't always march through life and, and soak this all up. You do – need to retreat at some point and, and take a deep breath and enjoy <laughs> something about life for two seconds. But when when can you do that? And is watching a great movie ever escaping? You know, uh, we talk about the, the, the you know, we, we kind of uh, knock movies for being escapist or like turn off your brain logic. We, we don't really appreciate that here on this podcast. And we, we knock movies for being incompetent. We knock movies for throwing plot aside or throwing visual aesthetics aside in favor of something crass or something boring or something repetitive uh, and uninspired. We, we want movies to challenge us. We want to rise to their occasion, and they, uh, we, want, we want to see something new or see something authentic every time. And yet that, so I come back to this, I think of Spielberg. You know, he got this reputation for being a master of, of escapism with his early movies, but I don't even know if he creates escapist entertainment. Uh, what, you know, he went on to, you know, make Schindler's List, make Color Purple, make Lincoln, make these movies that are certainly not uh, without thought and without urgency and without connection to our everyday lives. He's not really an escapist filmmaker. So I want to turn it to you guys. Uh, I talk too much. When, when are we allowed to escape? What is escapism? I guess is the big question here. Or are any movies ever escapism? Where do you guys turn? I think that when you brought up Lincoln, that'd be the perfect movie to watch right about now. When, like, when now, I, now, now, now. <laughs> now, 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 especially. <laughs> because when, I, like, when you're faced with something awful and incomprehensible, and I think in this particular case, something where your direct action it can't really do anything, like especially right now, it's kind of hard to know what to do. Watching a movie in which people are being good and accomplishing something, like not just, you know, in Lincoln, you're watching the accomplishment of this really amazing, you know, the, watching the government at work in a way that it might not work anymore, but also a really good movie, a really good performance. Like, I like watching things that remind me that people can accomplish amazing things. Uh, so kind of any movie works for that if you like it. Like, it can be Indiana Jones and have nothing to do politically, but kind of getting you in touch with your basic humanity in some way. There's a lot of movies that can do that. And I think that's a really important thing to do after really horrifying news that might make you lose your faith in people. Yeah, I guess. Oh, my, go, Dave. Oh, go. oh, I think we're actually might have some common ground here, which is even before, you know, you get plunged by world events into like a depressing mindset. I was pleasantly surprised by Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. Like, it's not a good movie, and it's, like, not the best turtle movie, but the fact that everybody in it is having, like, a goddamn ball making it, and that it's these cartoon characters that are part of my life, so there's a little bit of a nostalgia factor. Like, I went by myself and had a great time at the movies, and I think in a lot of ways, probably literally, I'll use the word literally, literally escaped my apartment and all the worries that come with it to go play around in, like, stupid CG Ninja Turtles world hmm. where Brad Garrett was, like, a talking testicle brain. <laughs> Nuts. Uh, but it's not an incompetent movie. That's what's, I think, interesting, that, that escapism, escapism doesn't have to be dumb, but it can literally have nothing on its mind, at least well, in terms of the outside know, world. Like there, There's... Well, there's a certain genius required to make 
exciting escape, you know, th- something that would function like well, that. What comes to your so mind? So absorbing. Well, uh, you know, I, I think Godzilla? that... Godzilla? None of this stuff hmm. is... What did you say, Katie? Just, Godzilla is just suggesting a, a large movie. That, no. might, that movie might God- have too much political resonance for, <laughs> for you. Godzilla had plenty of political resonance for me. But I don't think any of this stuff is uh, mutually exclusive. I think that there can be films that you can escape into that you can engage with sometimes one minute on one level and the next minute on another or one viewing in one way and the next viewing in another. Spielberg, I think, is a perfect example. Uh, I think something like The Adventures of Tintin. I'm sure, I, and I believe I have written about things uh, beyond its sort of escapist pleasures that I found to it, but that is a movie that the sheer grace and fluidity by which it moves that you can sit back and let your eyeballs sort of roll back and... Uh, um, and really just sort of disappear into it. And, uh, you know, the same could be said about, I don't know, uh, everybody wants some, to go with a recent example, where mm. you are just sort of lost with these bros hanging out and having a good time, um, while, of course, there are many different things happening in that movie that are warrant discussion uh, that it, it nevertheless coaxes you into that sort of uh, hangout vibe, which is uh, its own one kind of escape entertainment. Uh, what I wanted to say is that I, uh, I have been flirting with virtual reality recently uh, because I sit across from uh, the guy who does IndieWire's sort of virtual reality beat, and he has the Samsung Oculus Rift on his desk uh, and that he connects to his Sam- the Samsung office phone. And I did one the other day where I was in like it was a Netflix thing, and I was in like a chateau in Park City, and there was a giant screen on which I could watch House of Cards, and I could look around the house wherever I was, and just wonder about how terrifying it would be to play like a horror game in this way. Uh, but today I did a Chris Milk short film, like a virtual reality three hundred sixty degree short film, um, where I was in a lake, and then there were colors and birds. And oh yeah, I, I did that off. one at Sundance. That's just a, yeah, that's just then, a pleasant screensaver. Three sixty yeah, degrees. And, well, and when you take off, oh my god, I almost vomit. I mean, it's like my whole body. It's amazing how completely the virtual reality experience hijacks your brain and your senses and mm. you lose track of where you are. And uh, when your character takes off into the air, I mean, it felt like my internal gyroscope had sort of flipped on its head. Uh, anyway, that was escapist in its most literal sense. Like, I... It vanished from my office. Uh, I completely, like, I could not, my whole life was another reality, uh, you know, to plug the product and what it does, and it's what it's supposed to do. But for those 90 seconds or two minutes or however long it goes, um, I was forcibly removed from the existence that I knew. And so, uh, and this was, you know, 24 hours after this, this terrible uh it's terrible shooting in Florida, which had been on my mind all day. I think minutes before I'd been talking about it with someone. And um, for better or worse, when I put this on, I couldn't have thought about that had I tried because I was so focused just trying to maintain my balance. And so to some extent, that was a form of escapism that was pretty profoundly felt for me. Yeah, I, I was thinking a lot about, you know, I think when we talk about escapism, we think about big Hollywood blockbusters and you know special effects movies. Um, and of, of recent memory, I think the one movie that might be totally devoid of anything happening in the real world was like the National Treasure movies, 
the most Just, disposable. Even though they were so engaged in American history. Yeah, and yet they have nothing to do with anything. Uh, that's like quintessential, could probably flip this on. I'm not offended because it is at least dabbling in uh, history, intellectual What thought. about like the Mission Impossible movies? Yeah, that might be. Well, I, I mean, mean we but the problem those. is they became more about like terrorism and they became more about Are the they? issues relevant to that time. No, you're talking like Mission Impossible 3 is like the the MacGuffin chase to nowhere thrill. I'm thrill thinking around. more of uh, Sorry, I'm call. taking all David's lines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who are you and what have you done with the date? Um, <laughs> no, you might you're on, you're on to something with Mission Impossible, but even like straying even further away, now I'm thinking of is Julia Roberts the queen of romantic escapism is romance what how we can really detach from real life uh and i'm thinking of all of her romantic comedies then i'd even go back further and think about uh romances of the early 20th century musicals uh we'll, we'll get into that at our quarter quill eventually and then that's on my mind um what, what do you think about that is, is romance the genre and we don't see much of it today in theaters obviously but Maybe that's we we we're too cynical for romance these days. Romance, I find that romance throws me back on my own life very hard. I mean, I I think now, especially as I am engaged to be married, uh, I watch a dopey movie like Me Before You, and all I can think about is sort of extrapolating the emotions that these characters feel for one another to my own life, and imagine how I would react if my fiance was. Uh, but Me Before You is about death. Paralyzed and, no, but it's a, it's a romance. I mean, like, I think, you know, all, all these movies, you, you can contextualize in your own personal relationships. I think that they throw you back, at least for me, and, and oftentimes in very strong ways, uh, like Carol, for example, and, and sort of how that fit into my own, and spoke to my own understanding of love and the feelings that I've had of it. Uh, that threw me back on myself in a way that I wouldn't. No, I yeah, I'm status. with you. I think romances are really hard not to see and, and you know connect to your own life. But you know the movies that work kind of like uh, like mechanical clocks, like talking about Mission Impossible movies, the Ocean's Eleven movies, or you know the Ocean's movies did a good job of that for me. Now you see me does a good job of that. I'm not going <laughs> to again. Um, but yeah, I mean, or duplicity, which I brought up at the very beginning of the show, like the movies that are kind of like confident and breezy and move along. And even if, you know, duplicity is theoretically about like real life, big pharma, but you know, it's not Michael Clayton. It's not like anything connected to reality. And that's a really good right. movie. Like, I don't think the word, you know, the term escapism is uh, negative at all. Pace has something to do with it. It doesn't necessarily matter what genre. And like when you say breezy, I think that's key. It can be intelligent and breezy. Uh, and, magic and the Mike. craft. <laughs> yes, both magic mics are perfect examples. Yeah. Just about like getting swept up at someone else's. I mean, I guess the first magic mic is a little. You know, it's about the plight of uh, modern America and, and making it in America and economics and that sort of thing. But especially Magic Mike XXL. I don't know how that's just that's just abs, baby. That's a lot going on. <laughs> um, but I, I was thinking when you said breezy, I just got to see uh, a bigger splash movie that David recommended highly on the podcast a few weeks ago. And I was so drunk on it, both because I had like three margaritas during the movie, but the cinema of it all. I, I mean, I walked out and I was just 
I had to jump on Twitter and be like, movies, they're blowing my mind again. Why do we make movies? Movies, movies with like now more than ever. Yeah, and just like well, we're imitating people, actors. What this is insane. Like putting together stories and cutting them together, recreating life. It's it's so crazy. I, it just was blowing my mind. A bigger splash, mostly because Ray Fiennes dancing is a beautiful thing. Mostly because of the setting, the beautiful Italian uh, coast. Just like the way this film is constructed, it's breezy. It took me on a trip and what happens to these people is uh, tragic in some way but it's i don't know aloof or it's it's drunk on itself and i just thought that was really key so genre may not matter it may just be pace or it may be the the movement of cameras itself creates escapism yeah i think it's definitely pace it's the weird thing is last weekend i decided i hadn't seen seven in a while so i rented seven and it's like, usually that's a movie that I would never think, I would never count as like escapism. Like, I'm going to relax and watch Seven. Nope. But at this point, it's like this really interesting David Fincher movie with a lot of accomplished actors giving performances early in their like peak career. And I've like know it well enough that it did become like sort of this weird escapist movie because I think that movie is plotted so tightly. Whether it's plotted good or bad, I can't tell anymore. But it's like everything is leading to something and then the reveals double back on itself. So even if you, you know, aren't paying complete attention, the flow of the movie like takes you along with it. And I think like some of the uh, like lighter Cohen dramas have the same thing where if you want to read into them as great works of cinematic art, you definitely can. But you could turn them on in the background, too, and just let, let them go. I guess that's why towards... Lebowski has really risen to the top of the Cohen over for uh, so many people. Like everyone has seen Lebowski, but not very few people know who the Cohen brothers are. I would estimate. Interesting. Very few people. Don't you, like, don't you think yeah, like in like, the law? I mean, I'm talking in the, the masses here. Sure. I mean, sure. I mean, Lebowski does work like a clock in a, the detective movie kind of way that makes it work really well. But I think if you've seen Lebowski a bunch of times, you know who the Coens are. But anyway. Okay, not, fair, not fair. I shouldn't, I shouldn't knock the masses, but everyone seems to dig Lebowski, or most people. If you've gone to college, you've seen <laughs> Big Lebowski. That's, that's being their, classic. I think it's their worst movie? Their worst movie. It's up there with... It's up there. But that's what I would call the closest to killers. escapism. Pure, pure like absurdity detached from reality cinema well whatever it is it's crap whatever you you want to call it well bullshit i guess guess to wrap up here is is i've just seen a lot of people talk about avatar this year i don't know why is was it because of james cameron's announcement about new avatar movies why was almost certainly because there hasn't been really good 3d this year so it couldn't have been right yeah no one saw alice through the looking glass uh unfortunately but uh the legacy of avatar i mean i think it's being just kind of pure escapism that everyone could get behind and really lose themselves in and it's funny to me that people kind of question the legacy of avatar do people talk about it well why would they ever talk about it it was just there to kind of soak up in the theater we don't need to be talking about these movies all the time for them to be essential and for them to have to have uh executed their mission i think avatar is a near perfect movie and we never have to talk about it again for it to be important yep 
I mean, you're right in the sense that we never have to talk about it again for it to be important. But, like, that was... That's... Uh, Avatar was also something new, and it was delivered in the least offensive way to get, like, that something new across. Which I think is something different than, like, what you were saying before about it just being something about, like, the directing and the pacing coming together. Because it definitely isn't plot. And I know a lot of mine is, like, nostalgia influence, so I'm trying to filter that away. But I don't know if... Avatar is necessarily a good escapist movie. Did it feel that it's new? Exper- well, it's an experience you had in the theater. So, how many times have you rewatched Avatar since you've been able to watch it at home? I have never rewatched Avatar. So, you had an experience that you can actually escape to revisit because you had it that once, and that's like Avatar's legacy. I know. That's awesome, though. That feels like temporary it- art. That feels. I don't know. That just that f- makes it more iconic to me that it can't be replicated in the home, and that's what great escapism should be. Like we're really we have to go like a there. Theme park. Yeah. Well, a theme park doesn't have. I mean, w- there's no story to a theme park. There's no fucking glistening eyes created by Weta in a theme park ride. That's just momentum. I mean, the thrills of Avatar are go beyond riding the, oh, God, I can't remember the name of the flying creatures, but, man, I could have back in the day. I was so excited for Avatar. I knew all the Navi words. Uh, but it's, it was more than the, the cool action scenes. It really was them standing in the forest and gazing at each other's eyes and seeing how pristine that was and how alien it was. Uh, but it can't be replicated at home, I don't think. So you, we we have to go somewhere to escape, or you could just be sad people like me and like watch Game of Thrones and like sort of love it, but sort of be sad at the same time. Yeah, I, well, I don't think you can have escapism at home. Can you get away from reality? I mean, we've talked about it many times on the show, the plight of uh, watching movies on Netflix and feeling the call of your phone. Like, could you really get away from the conversations of this weekend or this entire year, just every time one of the politicians running for president speaks up and it becomes a Twitter trend. Like, are you going to escape reality in a functional way? Uh, in a I, powerful uh, way? I did that by sitting outside for a while on Sunday. It worked really well. <laughs> Wait a second. What? It was great. I sat outside. I did not look at my phone and I talked to people and it was great. I recommend it. Whoa, 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 whoa. I know. You guys. did not go to the movies. It was not a movie. It was there's real a, life outside. There's a, there's a whole world out there. Oh my yeah. god! I think I, I like the idea of like finding it by like going out to do it for sure. But just there's the part of me that knows that we need sane people that really hopes there's a way to escape from home. The true escapism was life. I mean, isn't the way to escape from home that whole VR thing we were just talking about? Like when we all have Oculus headsets in our houses. Yeah, VR is good. I like TV, but I still I also like movies. They just can't be Avatar because Avatar is something that you definitely had to escape for. National Treasure, starring Nicolas Cage. <laughs> See it. That you could do at home. Yeah. That does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. We will not have a review segment this week, but uh, David says Finding Dory made him weep like a child. So <laughs> I guess you should see it. Uh, we'll be back next week, though. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I am the senior entertainment editor at Thrillist.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. We have a website, fightingintheworldroom.com, where you can listen to the episodes, share the episodes, 
or you can write in about your experiences in professional tickling leagues all on our website, fightingintheworm.com. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I am senior film critic for IndieWire. You can find my review already published, Finding Dory, on IndieWire. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. And you can find all of us together on Facebook, Fighting in the War Room. I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell my first name DA7E. I write at geek.com and latito-review.com. I also do a bunch of podcasts. This week, I guested on a podcast called Cocktails and Clarity, where two young ladies talk about very frank discussion things. I am there to talk about the time I was a professional pornography blogger and about pornography in general. That episode is called Cocktails and Clarity, episode 11, Red Zone. You could find it or find all your crazy podcasts. Only the crazy ones. Oh, and I my turn i'm katie rich i'm katie rich you can find me at vanityfair.com and i'm on twitter at katie rich k-a-t-e-y-r-i-c-h and we're all on twitter at f-i-t-w-r where we'll be talking to each other talking to you not reading uh, your answers to this week's site narrow questions on the review episode this week but please answer it anyway what was it in honor of central intelligence what is the funniest action sequence thanks for listening and we'll be back talking to you next week 